0: Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you haven't been here before, or maybe it's been a little while, uh, we are in a series entitled Long Live the King as we work our way through the book of Revelation together. I actually have a map that I want to start with so that you can kind of see what we're going to be talking about this morning. So we're early on in the book, and John has been taken by the Spirit and has seen the risen Christ. And his vision of Christ is stunning. Christ appears to him with feet as burnished bronze and with the face shining like the sun, with a two-edged sword protruding from his mouth, with eyes of flame of fire. And he's standing amongst the lampstands which are his churches. And the first thing that Christ does is he begins to address one church after the next, after the next. And so, here we are. We've heard Christ address the church in Ephesus. By the way, the red star is where John is right now. It's the Isle of Patmos, where he's receiving this vision. And, and this is uh, labeled Asia. It's Turkey. So this is the west coast of Turkey. And the first uh, church mentioned in Revelation 2 was Ephesus. The second one mentioned is Smyrna. And we're going to make our way up to Pergamum this morning. And in fact, the churches listed in the Scripture are listed in kind of a a circle there. Uh, And so you can just kind of walk from one to the next to the next. So we're going to be considering Pergamum. The attention of the Lord, and you can go back to the regular slide, the attention of the Lord is on this church, this church city. What does the Lord see in Pergamum? What does he point out that we could learn from here as well? What does he encourage them for? What does he warn them about? What what promises and warnings does he bring in? In Ephesus, if you remember, we were encouraged not to abandon our first love, but to love the Lord our God with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other. That, w- that was the message to Ephesus, was to love. And then last week, the message to Smyrna. The message to Smyrna was, do not fear no matter what you're facing, but stand firm in the face of persecution or trial or difficulty. Now, Pergamum and the Lord has a word for them and through them, for us. So let us give our attention to what he would say and give ear to what the Spirit says to the churches. Follow along as I read. Revelations 2, beginning in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we pray that you would give, grant your Spirit to be at work among us. That as we study your Word, you would study us. and That you would call us to yourself. Help us to give attention to what you point out in our own lives and in our own church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in verse 12, Jesus references the fact that he's going to talk to the church in Pergamum, and he introduces them, he introduces himself to them as the one with the two-edged sword coming from His mouth. Now, a sword is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of authority. It's the ability to judge one's enemies, to execute one's will. And Christ's power, His, his authority, proceeds from His mouth. That picture of a sword coming out of His mouth. It speaks to the reality that the, the Word of Christ is power. He accomplishes what He wants simply by speaking. When He speaks, things happen. His enemies are judged. His critics are silenced. His people are revived. His word does not return void. Now the kings of the earth are different. They need armies and they need navies. They need tanks and missiles, bodyguards and policemen and secret service. Jesus needs only speak. And his will is done. It is that powerful Lord that speaks to the church. And he begins with a word of encouragement in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Of the seven churches in western Turkey, Pergamum, was the most difficult one, most difficult city to live in. Pergamum loved their worship of Rome. They loved it. We heard that last week about Smyrna, but even more so this week with Pergamum. She excelled her sister cities in the worship of Rome and in the worship of the emperor. So wholeheartedly, has she embraced this idolatry. So wholeheartedly has she given herself over to the power of Satan that the Lord calls it the place where Satan's throne is. Talk about demonic activity in this particular place. It is the center of satanic power and influence. If, if in the empire, Rome was the capital city of satanic work in the West. Pergamum was the capital of satanic work in the East. And from here, the enemy built his kingdom. So this dear church, they are living in enemy territory. And it's not just somewhere in enemy territory. It's the capital city of enemy territory. Indeed, on the very castle grounds of a demonic stronghold. And so it is no wonder that martyrdom has already come to Pergamum. One named Antipas had been killed because he was a faithful witness to the Lord. Now we don't know anything else about this one who was killed. This is the only verse we have on him. But when the Lord mentioned him, they knew who he was. They remembered. They still missed him. And the, the fear still hung in the air what happened to him could happen again. And yet, despite all of that, they had been faithful. Jesus says, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Lord, may that be said of us. That is a powerful commendation from the Lord. They had been steadfast. They had stood firm despite dwelling where Satan dwells. Still they stood. And yet, there is still danger. That brings us to Christ's correction of the church in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, if we're going to understand this warning, we have to get through two confusing references. And the first is to Balaam and Balak. So, Balaam is a figure from the Old Testament who opposed the people of God. He was one of the enemies of the people of God. As God's people were wandering the wilderness, they came up near the Midianites, and Balaam opposed them. But he didn't oppose them with arms. He was a clever opponent of God's people. So Balaam, rather than encouraging the people to arms, he encouraged the people to trick Israel into sin. And he taught them how to do it. And he taught them to send their women to seduce the men of Israel. And the men of Israel were seduced. And then to teach the men of Israel to worship their idols and the men of Israel worshipped their idols. And in Numbers 31.16, it says, These, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. They acted treacherously against the Lord. They turned from God to idols, into sexual immorality, into the worship of idols. It was their sin. It was the sin of the people of God But it was Balaam's wicked influence. He was teaching them to do it. Well, as then, so here in Pergamum. False teachers were arising in the same way as Balaam had done, and they were teaching God's people to sin. They were messing with the doctrine of the church. They were teaching contrary to Christ. And what they were teaching was a kind of moral compromise. That you could be a Christian on the inside and act like a pagan on the outside. After all, Christianity is all of grace. It's an internal religion. doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Just love the Lord with your mind. You could, you could worship Caesar with your mouth as long as your heart was really worshiping the Lord. You could go to these these temples, and worship these idols, so long as it was just your body and not your heart. False teaching and false doctrine. This group is very similar to the second one that we want to get our minds around, confusing reference, the Nicolaitans. You might remember it from two weeks ago in Ephesus. That's the other place where they are mentioned. The Ephesian church had pushed the Nicolaitans out of their church because of their false teaching, and Jesus had said to them, He said, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let you know what team Jesus is on there. And He commended the church of Ephesus for pushing out those who were teaching syncretism, who were teaching that you could live like a pagan as long as your heart was for Jesus. The church of Ephesus had put those false teachers out of their church, the church of Pergamum had not. They were still coming to care group. They were still leading studies. They were still gathering with the congregation. They were still targeting sheep with their fatal influence and pulling God's people away from God. So, what's the problem at Pergamum? Well, we could see there's moral compromise. That is certainly present. That is certainly a problem. In fact, we're going to look at that in more detail next week or next time when we get to the church in Thyatira. Moral compromise is a threat to the church. But the problem here is not that some had fallen into sin. And the problem here was not that some had followed false teachers. The problem is that all had tolerated false teachers. That is the problem. They were tolerating false doctrine. Jesus says, you have some there who believe this. You have some there who are teaching this. Those among you, still part of the church, still attending meetings with you, deceiving my people as they go. You know what the sin of Pergamum is? tolerance tolerance sounds strange to our culturally conditioned ears let us allow the lord to cleanse our ears because he's not tolerant of false teaching in his church and he is rebuking that church for tolerating false teaching among them they were they were tolerating false teachers and false doctrine. They had refused to separate from among them those leading others astray. They had refused to defend the truth, refused to exercise church discipline on those who were teaching heresy. They refused to risk upsetting people, causing some kind of division, engaging in conflict with false teachers, and so sheep were in danger. Young people were being swallowed up. New believers are being swayed. The vulnerable are being led to the slaughter. Where are the spiritually mature? Where are the men? Where are the godly women? Where are the deacons? Where are the elders and pastors? Sleeping shepherds while wolves devour. wonder how long you've been part of the church in America. Maybe Mercy Hill is your first, but probably you've been to many throughout your life. Allow me a moment to give a picture, landscape view of the church right now over the past many years. I want you to know that I do this with sorrow and grief Because it is a picture of a sick church overall in the West. The landscape of the church in the West in the last hundred years is Pergamum. It is the acceptance of and toleration of false doctrine in the church. That's that's the picture. And church after church, pastor after pastor denomination after denomination has taken this word and just sort of set it aside and preached on without it over and over and over again. It is always a temptation as a teacher to ignore uncomfortable doctrines or to bring in new ideas. Highlight worldly philosophies. Are there faithful churches? Praise God, yes, there are faithful churches. There are faithful churches even in denominations, some of which I'll mention, that have fallen away from God's Word and from preaching the Gospel. There are still some faithful churches. But the Gospel is no longer normally proclaimed in many a denomination that grew up proclaiming Jesus. There were converts made... There were, there were believers, that people that came to Christ and they were matured in their faith. These denominations matured and multiplied disciples through the power of the gospel, just like we're trying to do here. But now the gospel is no longer normally proclaimed in Lutheran pulpits, in Episcopal pulpits, in Methodist pulpits, in PCUSA pulpits. They yielded to the pressures to shift their doctrine. And the shift was primarily a shift in the doctrine of God. It's primarily what it has been. Challenging the doctrine of God. The the word often used is it's the progressive gospel. That's what it's called. Don't let it confuse you too. It's not a gospel. The progressive gospel is no gospel. It denies the godness of God. So he, he couldn't have spoken through a book. So We don't really believe this is his word. Certainly the, the miracles can't be true. Because science, you know. He's not the creator because science tells us he's not. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't born of a virgin. Didn't do the miracles. We're willing to accept some of the sayings that we agree with, but the other ones that we don't like as much... We're going to clip those out of our Bibles. Jesus came to be a great moral teacher. That's why he came. So we should all try to live like Jesus. He didn't come to save us from our sins. Because God is not that holy. He didn't die a substitutionary death on the cross. That's just an example of giving yourself for others. No gospel there. And for the past 70 years or more, this has spread like an infection from church to church to church and simply swallowed denominations all over this country. It is a sad, sad thing. How many churches around us, actual church buildings with people in them right now throughout Spotsylvania County are not opening their Bibles as the pastor preaches? We Should be, could be, rightly, angry at false teaching and false teachers. But is our heart not also for unfed sheep? Folks who have been attending because they believe it's the right thing to do week after week, year after year, and receive no food, no gospel, no grace, no challenge to holiness, no truth. This is a Massive defeat of the church in the West. A massive defeat. Put it on the level of, you know, historical, the the U.S. losing World War II. This is a massive defeat. There were churches everywhere. Now there's shells everywhere. Those shells will close in the next generation. It's obvious. Apart from a work of God. More recently, among other churches, those not swept up in this first wave, historically churches that are more evangelical, historically churches that are more committed to their Bibles, another set of false teaching has come in. This, called the prosperity gospel. This one puts, displaces God at the center of the Scripture, puts you at the center of the Scripture. You, you need some... You need some therapy. It's not that you're a sinner, you, but you do need some help, and God's here to help you. It, the, the Bible's very therapeutic. So, so God will help you get over the things you need to get over, like a poor self-image, or the disadvantages of poverty, or physical sickness, or oppression. Jesus came to help you live your best life now to, li- to have health and wealth and liberation. Gone again. Gone again is sin and holiness. Gone again is the substitutionary sacrifice of one Jesus Christ on the cross to meet the greatest need that we ever had to save us from the wrath of God. God again is the gospel. It's Pergamum again and again and again and again throughout the West. And that brings us to Christ's warning in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The whole church in Pergamum had tolerated the false teaching. And so the whole church is called to repentance. He calls them to repent or he will come and wield the sword which is his to wield. If there is a church that will not defend the truth, will not confront False teaching that will not protect the sheep of the Lord, the Lord Himself will show up and make war for His people. He who is the Word made flesh will come with the Word in His mouth, armed for battle. And the clear warning is be on the right side of that fight. The clear warning when the Lord comes to fight is that we be found among those who have repented. So what does repentance look like? What does it look like to repent? Well, First of all, as I seek to help us apply this, I think this is a call for us to be vigilant in the area of teaching. To be vigilant in the area of doctrine. To think doctrinally. To recognize that all the pressure on the church is towards tolerance. All of it. That's, That's the cultural pressure on the church is tolerance. Let us hear the voice of the Lord, dear church, that it is wrong to tolerate what is wrong. It is evil to tolerate what is evil. We are called to defend truth, to uphold truth. Here, that will mean it has meant that we need to, at times, exercise church discipline. Church discipline is authority that God has given to local churches to remove from their number those who are teaching falsehood. It's used for two cases, right? It's the person who's saying they're a Christian and living like a pagan, out loud and open, celebrating their sin, saying that's what it looks like to be a Christian. That person is to be removed from the church. And it's it's to remove the one who's who's pretending to stand up and speak the words of God, but is speaking... The doctrines of man should be removed from the church. That's what church discipline is for. It's got a twofold goal. The first is for the for the one caught up in sin that they would repent. It's, it's, it's not meant to be harsh. It's, it's meant to draw people back to the Lord, to show them, brother, sister, this isn't what it looks like to be a Christian. Turn around, repent. The Lord will have you turn around and repent it's to call the false teacher to repentance as well but it is up to the lord as to whether or not people repent in the exercise of church discipline it's also the protection of the purity of the bride of christ the protection of the weak amongst the bride of christ protection of the sheep So this is why at Mercy Hill we have a great emphasis. If you've been here, you've seen it. We have a big emphasis on church membership. And the reason is that we know who's the church. Who are we? So that church discipline, what it ultimately results in is the removal of membership. It's not that they could never come back and visit. It is to say, though, this is not what it looks like to be a believer. You can't teach that here. You can't live that way, and claim to be a Christian here among us. It looks like following Jesus together. So church discipline results in the removal of membership, which is why we take church membership seriously and have a kind of process for that. I praise God we've only had to walk out church discipline a few times over 14 years. Um, We have needed to before, and we will need to again. And on that day, may the Lord give us grace to do so in a compassionate way and in a kind way and in a unified way and in a loving way and in a bold way because the pressures on the church won't let up now now listen i i just i just gave us a kind of corporate application did you hear it the corporate application is be ready for when we need to exercise church discipline again that's a corporate application Right? So that we know what we're doing. When that day comes, you've got some understanding of why would a church be so intolerant? <laughs> because that's how it's going to be thought of. It right? uh, should also give you some personal application. Uh, I don't know whether you're called to be a member here, but I can tell you you are called to be a member of the church. If you're a believer, you're called to be a member somewhere. Or else, who is it that's watching over your soul? who is it that would lovingly exercise church discipline if you were to wander D- don't don't be a disaffected sheep just out there find a church where you can be a member the pressure on the church is not letting up our our parents and grandparents in the faith faced a certain kind of pressure in their generation it was a kind of pressure on the doctrine of god it dethroned god softened the belief in the creator because of scientific consensus. Soften the belief in miracles. Again, science. Soften the emphasis on sin and repentance because God is not seen as holy anymore. The pressure, the pressure, the pressure to tolerate heresy within the church. A pressure which worked to fantastic effect. And none of that's going away, but we are facing new pressures. And we will continue If the pressure in the last few generations has been on the doctrine of God, ours is on the doctrine of man. Which makes sense. If you change the Creator, you can change the one made in the image of the Creator as well. The pressure, church, the pressure, is on the doctrine of man. How do we view men and women? There you go. Do we view as men and as women? as God has made us men and women, equally in the image of God, but distinct and different and only two. Second pressure is on marriage, as God ordained between one man and one woman. Pressure to redefine and accept a new definition other than what God Himself has defined. The third pressure, to not call sin, sin. Don't call sin, sin. If you call sin, sin, you're being unsafe. You're being anti-trans. Anti-LGBTQ. Anti-love. You've got to celebrate sin. If you won't celebrate sin, you're evil. Make no mistake. I'm not... If you won't celebrate sin, you will be called evil. Christians must not. We must not. The gathered church must not say that evil is good. And it must not say that good is evil. We must not. Friends, this is where the lines are being drawn. This is where we must stand. This is the the fight of our day. Why? Because this is not our church. It's His. And the one with the sharp, two-edged sword in his mouth gets to say what goes in his church. He is the Lord and Master. He is the truth. And he insists that his church believe the truth and minister the truth and defend the truth and proclaim the truth. This is not our church. It's His. So may the Word of God be proclaimed here regardless of pressure. Fearlessly, boldly, compassionately, with love. Though the world call us evil. Though it call evangelism hate. Though they call compassion being anti-love. We will hear those voices. We must listen to His voice. He is the one who tells the church what to do. And that leads us to the promises of Christ. Before we go there, let me we live in a very transitory culture. People move all the time. Chances are good that you're going to find another church someday. For some reason, you're going to have to move on. Right? Recognize how hard that's getting. okay? I am not saying we're the best church in history. I'm just saying... We're trying to be a faithful church at our time. And there are many places that call themselves churches that are not. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived in two ways. First, that you could just move somewhere and find a good church. You think so. There might have been a day. There may still be one or two towns somewhere. There's not many places where you can just assume that you're going to find a faithful church. Bible preaching, gospel proclaiming church. Don't put yourself in a wilderness for a job without looking ahead. Is there a church here that will nourish my family? Fathers, pay attention for your home. Don't move somewhere until you know there's going to be a place that feeds you and your wife and your kids. College students, don't pick a college. Out looking for a church. Find a church to nourish you. Then find the best college you can get into. Right? But put it in that order, friends. This matters. This is life and death. We must know the Lord. Which leads us to the promise in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. These are somewhat difficult pictures to understand. There are two, two things here. There's the, the white stone and the hidden manna. There's kind of two um, backgrounds to the white stone concept. So this is like what the, the history people bring to us as we read our Bibles. Uh, in Roman times, when somebody was on trial and the, the jury would, would, would give their verdict, if you on the jury believed that the person was innocent, you would put a white stone into the middle. And if you believed them guilty, you'd put a black stone into the middle. A white stone was awfully good news to see if you were the one who was accused. The other was if you were having some sort of uh, a party, uh, a big event, you would actually hand out white stones in advance. And then those would be collected at the door, kind of tokens. It was Ticketmaster of the day. Okay? So I, I, I like taking those two backgrounds and just thinking of them together because it's a precious promise from the Lord. The world may call you evil for standing up for true doctrine, but I'm going to declare you innocent. How great is that? And the world, they may kick you out because of what you believe, but I'm giving you a token that no one can take, and you're going to be with me one day for all time. That is a precious, precious gift. To a suffering church that's trying to stand in the middle of trial. I love that and I probably love the other one even more, the hidden manna. Not just manna, but hidden manna. You know, manna is of course what God used to sustain his people in the Old Testament as they wandered in the wilderness. Here, here they were some millions of people with no farming, no agriculture, no herds of anything, and the Lord fed them day after day after day. They had food that the nations around them knew nothing of, and the Lord promises that to His wilderness church again. Will we be sustained under all pressure and trial? Yes, we will, because the Lord promises to His people hidden manna. It's a hidden manna. It's a manna that, the, that the, those around us know nothing of. They can't see. They can't perceive. It's undetected by the culture. It's unseen by the world. It's untasted by the outside. But come and taste and see. The Lord is good. And He provides for us all that we need. I think of this as secret grace that the Lord gives. What do we need church? What do we need beyond the hidden manna of the Lord? The hidden manna of of His presence that He gives to us, of His grace, the, the source of joy within in the middle of what we're walking through, the courage to face what He calls us to face, the peace that passes understanding, the boldness to stand for truth, the compassion to do it in love, the doing good to those who hate you, grace that strengthens, mercy that forgives, the Word that feeds. (sighs) Taste and see. The Lord is good. And He is well able to keep His church and to sustain His church through all the pressure that we face in this age of pressure in which we live. The the threats and the falsehoods and the lies and the temptations the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans and the false teachers all around. All around! But here within, the secret manna that the Lord gives to His people. We have Him. What else do we need? We have Him and His Spirit and His presence and His sustaining us and He will be with us to the end of the age. We have all that we need. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand. Lord, it is a difficult and confusing time to live. Many here are pressured to conform to the pressures of this world. Lord, would you give us wisdom on how to love those around us? On how not to pick fights we don't need to, but on also where to stand. Lord, teach us to stand. Help us to be bold. Lord, what's scary as we consider the future of Mercy Hill is that we are no stronger nor better than any other church. We look to you. Sustain us, O Lord. With that hope in eternity of that white stone and with the grace sufficient for today of that manna, you are all that we need. We worship you. Amen.